I'm Father Gregory Pine, an assistant director for the Thomistic Institute, and it's my joy to welcome you back for this most recent installment of Off-Campus Conversations, uh, where we follow up with um, a professor who has given a lecture on campus or in the context of a, a retreat or, or otherwise, uh, so that way we can yeah, chase down some of those insights and continue the conversation. So for this installment, I'm very delighted to be joined by Father Michael Long. Uh, thanks so much for joining. Very pleased to be part of this conversation, Father Gregory. Wonderful. Um, I'm sure many people listening in will know you from your various publications on the liturgy and beyond, from your work with the Congregation of Divine Worship, uh, from you know contributions that you've made in other outlets. Uh, for those who don't know you, would you say a word of introduction, who you are, uh, where you're from, and what you do? I am um, originally from uh, near Nuremberg in Germany. Uh, then I went to study um, in England, and for well over 20 years now, I've been an oratorian, a member of the Congregation of the Oratory of St. Philip Neri in London. Uh, so here I um, share in uh, the pastoral work uh, of our church, um, our various apostolates. Uh, I also teach church history at Allen Hall Seminary and at St. Mary's University, Twickenham. So this is my main work and uh, my research interests, especially in the last few years, have been really um, a liturgy, history of the liturgy, but also uh, contemporary liturgical questions. Wonderful. Um, in the lecture that you gave, you uh, focused on various aspects of Eucharistic life and devotion, um, thinking about, you know, like whether one stands or kneels for the Eucharistic prayer, whether one receives on the hand or on the tongue, uh, whether there be a tabernacle on the high altar or, you know, if the Blessed Sacrament is reserved in another place or in another situation. Um, so, so various questions, all of which I think, um, you know, maybe some people are, are made uncomfortable because it can be contentious or because those types of conversations, uh, depending on the setting, can be a bit fraught. Uh, but but I thought that the way that you introduced them, you know, like very modestly, very humbly, uh, and historically was a was a great onboarding point. So maybe as a way to begin this conversation, pursuant to that lecture, I thought it, I thought it'd be fruitful to talk a bit about tradition, because it seems like tradition is at the heart of all of those questions. So maybe could you lead us into the theme? What do we mean by tradition as Catholics? How do we appreciate it in our lives? Well, the tradition is a, is a very big question. Uh, tradition, in the sense of the apostolic tradition, is essential for uh, our understanding of, well, revelation, how we receive revelation. It um, is one of the ways in which divine revelation is communicated to us through scripture um, and tradition. So this tradition, which is... Um, sort of understood and and lived and practiced in uh, the life in the church is well very important for how we well, approach the faith and live uh, the faith. Now um, that's what's sometimes called tradition with uh, a capital T, and then there are traditions uh, uh, well in lowercase. Um, which are not simply identical with that apostolic tradition, but certainly form part of it, uh, make it up. Um, and and um, these traditions, 
develop and they do change uh, occasionally. There's, of course, the uh, substantial continuity uh, of the apostolic tradition, but traditions can also um, develop and be modified you know, by the church with the guidance um, of the Holy Spirit. And in my uh, presentation, I looked especially at the question of Eucharistic adoration, very much part of the life of the church and the life of many uh, faithful today. And that's wonderful. That's a great grace and blessing. But it hasn't always been. So in the in the early church, indeed in the first millennium, we don't really have um, Eucharistic adoration as we now understand it. But I wanted to show how the ground was really prepared, uh, both theologically and also liturgically, for this to develop, and how it is indeed an authentic development from earlier roots. So maybe then we could we could follow up on that authenticity. Um, so we have the essay of St. John Henry Newman on the development of doctrine with various criteria for determining the authenticity thereof. Uh, when it comes to traditions, I imagine that there's a kind of similar judgment to be made on the authenticity of a development in the tradition or a potential change in the tradition. What would you, like, just uh, for, for Catholics trying to think their way through these issues, what might be some ways that we could judge or evaluate uh, authenticity, whether it's present or whether it's absent? Uh, as an oratorian, I'm, uh, of course, very happy to uh, talk about, uh, hear about uh, St. John Henry Newman, um, wonderful saint, and hopefully one day he might be declared a doctor of the church because I believe his work is really very essential. And his essay on the development of doctrine uh, proposes uh, notes, really criteria for distinguishing authentic development from uh, corruption. And um, these are not uh, sort, of, um, sort of hard uh, criteria, like, say, say uh, in, in, in the natural sciences, but they give us a certain um, um, tools for discerning, well, we would say the genuine development uh, from um, uh, forms of, of corruption. And uh, Newman um, speaks certainly about preservation of type, so uh, a certain degree of continuity is essential here. But he also um, introduces the note or category of assimilation. So the church is, I mean, has been through her 2,000-year history, um, able to, to assimilate cultural expressions, um, local traditions, local customs into that broad stream of uh, tradition. But in a way, and often they need to be need to be baptized, need to be uh, evangelized to be fully integrated into uh, the church's expression of faith, uh, formulation of faith, and uh, certainly also practice in worship. So then, um, it, it, it'll typically be the case when somebody explains the rationale or the motivation for a change that he or she will appeal to the tradition, um, but obviously people are going to make different types of appeals to the tradition. So I'm thinking of the Second Vatican Council and the ways in which certain individuals were more of a ressourcement type mentality, that is to say, recover things from the past, whereas others were more of an aggiornamento type mentality, which is to say kind of push on in towards or towards the future with a, with a kind of updating, a necessary updating that need be undertaken. I guess, you know, with, with anything that we human beings lay hand to, there's a chance that um, 
that we do it poorly, that we do it selfishly. Um, I think that, you know, like one thing you were highlighting in your lecture was this um, uh, choice among different aspects of the tradition. So, you know, people who might say themselves to be recovering uh, a traditional teaching would, would be hopping over other aspects of a traditional teaching or, or otherwise. We can see how this might look in different permutations. Um, so maybe like just kind of with a, with a deeper appreciation for the complexity of it, what are, what are further ways in which we can like discipline our approach to the tradition without just judging according to our own whim or fancy, but, but kind of submitting ourselves to the tradition itself, permitting ourselves to be judged by the tradition. I don't know if you have thoughts on that theme. I would certainly be sympathetic towards a ressourcement approach. In fact, uh, I, I grew up uh, Protestant, uh, Lutheran, and I became a Catholic uh, during my studies in Oxford. And um, uh, the fathers, the early fathers of the church were very important in that process, so sort of reading the fathers, uh, becoming more familiar with the, well, just a, a theological perspective on, uh, of the church fathers, which is so, well, so deeply Catholic. Um, and hence, uh, uh, in a way, I, my approach is also that of resource more, the, the, the early Christian tradition. Uh, but I think one has to be careful not to uh, omit everything that has happened in between. I mean, the, the uh, fathers are obviously uh, fundamental uh, for uh, our understanding um, of the faith and, and the Christian life. Um, uh, that's why, you know, also previous generations have looked at them with great respect and, uh, and uh, yeah, reverence. Um, but that doesn't mean you can simply ignore everything that has happened um, since. And there are certain uh, developments that go beyond, say, the patristic age, the age of the fathers, that are very important for us. I mean, as, as a Dominican, uh, uh, for you, the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas, obviously very important. I don't know uh, St. Thomas nearly uh, well at, in, in, as well enough as, uh, as, uh, as, I, I, as I'd like to, but I'm, al almost, I'm, I'm always um, very impressed and, and, and deeply um, uh, really enlightened whenever uh, I sort of dive into the Summa occasionally uh, regarding some questions I'm interested in. Um, but also then the the, the later tradition, uh, say the, the early mo early modern or post Tridentine uh, tr tradition, uh, cannot be simply set aside. That I think was a weakness in the twentieth century ressourcement movement that they tended to uh, be dismissive of that part of the tradition. So in a sense, it is it is a whole, um, and there are certain. Um, uh, developments which we talk about the liturgical life or say here the the, the uh, practice of Eucharistic adoration where both the, the mid middle ages and also the baroque period really um, um, had um, uh, brought us a, a deepening of um, well the, the sense of the mystery the um, understanding of uh, uh, the presence of God among us so um, resource more, yes, but uh, you have to be careful to read it sort of within the broader tradition. Okay, maybe maybe just one further question about the tradition, then we can pass to a consideration of the Eucharist. You know, uh, as you as you described in your talk. Um, so I think a lot of Catholics in the twenty first century 
uh, whether consciously or unconsciously, or maybe I'm making this out to be a bigger thing than it is, regardless. Um, a lot of Catholics in the 21st century, they have difficulty engaging with the tradition, because this is not to say that there there was a rupture, um, you know, like that that question is to be evaluated at a more macro level. But on a more micro level, many people experience ruptures uh, in their reception uh, or their recognition more basically in reception of the church's tradition, whether that be that they themselves cease the practice of the faith for a time, or they've kind of found themselves in a situation at a distance from a Christian community, or uh, the faith was not transmitted to them by their parents and in its integrality or by their religious educators. And I think a lot of people, they find themselves in a strange situation where it's like, you can either hearken back and arbitrary, arbitrarily recover uh, without a real sense of context, without a real sense of continuity, or you can just despair of all that and then just start afresh. Um, for for the 21st century Catholic, what are ways of living in the tradition, you know, learning to think with the mind of the church and to love with the heart of the church? I don't know if you have any counsel on that on that score. Well, uh, in the first place, um, obviously we, we live our Catholic faith as... Um, part of well, a community, uh, part of the, well, the church where, where we go to, the, the parish uh, uh, we belong to. And um, that uh, well, certain, certainly, hopefully, will give us some, some guidance of how, how to live um, that faith. Um, so we uh, should always be uh, aware that we, we're not doing it on our own and we don't need to invent it. Uh, uh, all uh, on our own, and we don't need to uh, recover everything so uh, on 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 our own if we've been, become somewhat disconnected. But um, well, uh, the, the the community of the church is there really to uh, to guide and uh, to support us. Um, practically speaking, of course, that can be more difficult than perhaps it sounds, and. Um, uh, there certainly is uh, in, in in our day a lot on on offer. If, for example, what we are doing here so is on, on on the internet, um, and that is good. That is great. Uh, you have all well, you have so much now on your um, uh, at your disposal where you can nourish your faith. You can um, uh, follow courses on you know the Church Father Saint Thomas Aquinas on uh, liturgical tradition, um, but uh, I think it's important that um, you have some sort of um, context, uh, some, some some real life context in which you are, you are doing that, and you have a a good community. Um, either ideally, I know that's cannot always be the case, but ideally, a good strong parish, but perhaps uh, attach yourself to well a religious order, um, a, a movement uh, where uh, you really have a, a lively sense uh, of um, of the faith. I think that's also needed in. Um, at least as is, uh, our context here, London, um, where uh, there are not so many Catholics, where the general atmosphere, especially among younger people, is often very secular, where there's uh, even hostility towards religion. So um, it's important to to connect with others and um, uh, well find that well, you're not the only one, and uh, but uh, there are actually others uh, who share your faith and. Uh, um, where you you can offer support and also receive support in uh, living the faith. Wonderful. Okay, and one of the resources that one finds in, in big cities and beyond is 
uh, Eucharistic adoration, I suppose to call it a resource seems crass, uh, insufficient appreciation for the mystery itself. Uh, but you, you introduced the theme in your lecture uh, in light of a kind of 20th century controversy where there was some concern that Eucharistic adoration places a false emphasis on looking at the Eucharist rather than receiving the Eucharist. So we have this understanding, this teaching that the ecclesial fruit of the Eucharist is just the unity of the mystical body, that whereas in the ordinary course, when we eat something, it becomes us, but whereas, you know, with the Eucharist, when we eat it, we become our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, head and members, the one worshiping Christ. And so there's this emphasis on the part of some in partaking uh, frequency of communion, not being overly scrupulous about those things that might keep you from receiving communion, and not so much on the devotional, you know, kind of adoration piece. Um, so, yeah, what are what are some ways to wend our way through this, you know, seeming controversy or this Scylla and Charybdis of too much on the one hand or too little on the other hand? How how can we think it through? Yeah. It was indeed quite a lot of criticism of Eucharistic adoration in about the middle of uh, the 20th century. In those days, um, Eucharistic adoration uh, was, I should say, very common in, in most, well, if not well, virtually all Catholic parishes. You had that very, very regularly, and many people participated in it. Um, uh, at the same time, say certainly before the... Uh, movement towards more frequent communion uh, launched by Pope St. Pius X really uh, took on. Uh, communion was quite a rare event uh, in the life of um, uh, most Catholics. Um, uh, so uh, the, uh, those from, especially from the liturgical movement who saw this uh, rather uh, uh, critical, you know, you know, in a critical way, um, argued that, well, uh, Eucharistic adoration sort of draws you away from the real purpose of um, um, the Eucharist, which is, well, to, to receive it, to receive the sacrament, and, and as, as you say, then uh, to build up the unity uh, and charity of, of, uh, uh, of the Church. And um, I think, as is often the case uh, with um, uh, these... Um, uh, renewal movements of the 20th century um well i think they certainly had a point there was uh they were partly right uh but then they were also partly wrong and they, they sort of overstated their um uh, case and uh went went through the baby out with bathwater uh, as we say um i think there may uh, certainly the balance say between adoration and communion wasn't quite uh, right at the time, but um, uh, some some of the big figures of the liturgical movement were, were really overly overly critical of, of adoration. And so, uh, in Sacrosanctum Concilium, the the Second Vatican Council Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Eucharistic adoration is, as far as I uh, can see, uh, not even mentioned. And it's a document that uh, does really, really uh, presents the liturgy in quite a comprehensive way. Uh, so that reflects the spirit of the time. And uh, so there was certainly a, a steep decline in, in the practice. There was something of a rupture there, um, uh, which uh, Pope, uh, Pope Paul VI, after the council, uh, or even during the council, still um, recognized and, and in, uh, his, in his teaching documents tried to, tried to correct, really, uh, tried to set right. Now, um, fortunately, um, 
this uh, situation has changed in more recent decades. Uh, Eucharistic adoration has come back, um, very much so, really, uh, and, and uh, is flourishing in many places, as, as you said, uh, uh, in Father Gregory in the cities, um, uh, above all. And it sometimes seems to me that uh, we're going back to, to the situation, at least here in Europe, where Christianity is a religion of the cities, as it was in the early days. So uh, in a city like London or, or Paris, you get many very vibrant uh, churches, parishes, but it's more if you, if you go to the countryside that you, you, you can't expect that. But uh, certainly in the cities, you have a, a churches offering um, many hours of, of adoration, and people are coming, especially younger people are coming. So in a way, um, that um, problem has... Um, not quite solved itself. It will, uh, the, the post-conciliar popes actually paid great attention to uh, Eucharistic adoration and uh, supported its re return. Um, and at the same time, um, communion, uh, the practice of receiving the Eucharist uh, has uh, be become more common. So um, I, hope that, I think there is a clearer understanding of uh, adorations that sort of relation towards receiving the Eucharist, and we're preparing for it, nourishing that desire to become one with Christ in in the sacrament of uh, His love. And so, in a way, adoration is the best way to to receive uh, a Holy Communion. So, um, I think there's still a debate in uh, among theologians, among liturgists about this. But uh, in practice, in a way, um, the situation, the problem has been resolved, and adoration is thriving in many places. Um, perhaps like one of the difficulties uh, for those who don't appreciate the practice of Eucharistic adoration is that like the mode of engagement is less clear um, insofar as, you know, when you partake of Holy Communion, you know, sacramentally and spiritually, you know, you eat it uh, and the act of assimilation is straightforwardly sensate, you know, tangible. And whereas exactly what transpires in the act whereby one gazes on the Blessed Sacrament, I suppose is less clear. Many of us will quote that line from St. Jean Vianney's uh, parishioner who says, you know, I look at him and he looks at me. I don't know if you've, you know, thought or written much on the act of intelligence or of affection which transpires between the Christian and his or her God in, in Eucharistic adoration, but yeah, if you have some insights there, ways to help us appreciate better what it, what it is that takes place or what it is that transpires in Eucharistic adoration. Yeah, I certainly haven't written um, anything uh, about this, but it would be, I think, an important topic to uh, explore. In a way, it's um, a school of, of mental prayer, of silent prayer, and that line from uh, St. John Vianney is, is a wonderful one. Uh, that's a really great... Um, way of um, explaining what um, mental prayer is about. Um, uh, so just be, being in, in, in the presence of um, uh, Christ in, in, in a very unique way, in, in, in the way he chose to be present in uh, the sacrament. And um, adoration, of course, can have, can have different forms. You can have some sort of guided holy hour. You can you offer prayers, you say a litany, you sing a hymn, um, say, the, say the rosary. Why not? The liturgists are somewhat critical of this because you address the prayer to, uh, to Our Lady, of course. But it's in a way you, go, you, you, you um, approach um, 
Christ through his blessed mother. I mean, that's, uh, and but uh, then there are the, the I think the very precious moments of uh, silent adoration um, where um, we can develop that um, uh, well, that mental that, that mental prayer that raising really of of the heart and mind to God without sort of saying uh, uh, prayers. Uh, one um, a blessed, uh, I'm sure he will be a saint very soon. I've really become quite fascinated with uh, is uh, blessed Carlo Acutis. Um, I mentioned him in my talk. Um, he was actually born in London and baptized in, in, in the parish that is next to, to our uh, church. Um, and he, he really was something like, well, the, a natural mystic, uh, uh, a boy growing up in a very much non-practicing Catholic family who developed an incredibly deep uh, faith. Um, and uh, he died at the age of uh, 15, uh, a very aggressive form of cancer, and really was ready to, to, to hand his life uh, back to God. And um, Man, uh, young young man, a boy of, of incredible, so practical charity, as uh, many people testified after his death. And for him, adoration was uh, something very essential. He went to adoration, even as say as, as a boy, uh, as often as he could. And uh, a little bit like the the uh, uh, the, the, the farmer, the, uh, the uh, curé of ours speaks about, he saw um, adoration as a familiar conversation with Christ. He knew that uh, Christ was present here. As of course his his Lord, his Savior, but also um, as his friend, and he also could speak to him uh, as a friend. Of course, our Lord calls us friends, uh, and in Eucharistic adoration, this becomes very real. So we can entrust ourselves to Him. We can entrust our our cares, our worries, our uh, concerns uh, to Him. Our perplexities, our uh, our confusions, you know, in the way uh, the world is going, or we might find ourselves in. Um, so uh, that sort of simple conversation with Christ, who is present among us, um, is uh, one of the most wonderful aspects, I think, of Eucharistic adoration. Yeah. Um, so this this would be a more kind of phenomenological or even existential question. Um, so I'm thinking about my experience. Um, you know, I don't, I don't travel too terribly much, but when I do travel, I typically will stay in one of our houses or in a rectory. Every once in a while, though, I, I don't. Um, you know, like I'll stay at a hotel or whatever else. And uh, I find mental prayer in that setting to be more difficult. That might testify to my own intellectual fragility. Uh, but also, like the experience of difference between praying in the absence of the Blessed Sacrament versus praying in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament is far more marked for me than the difference between praying in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament in the tabernacle and in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament exposed in the monstrance. And I suppose, like, adoration, would we call, you know, prayer before the Blessed Sacrament in the tabernacle adoration? Uh, and then, I don't know if your knowledge of the history of the development of the practice of Eucharistic adoration, at what point does... Um, you know, the ostensory, or what do we call it, the, the monstrance, come into wider use? And um, are, there, are there particular notes of Eucharistic adoration or of Eucharistic devotion which are accentuated or which are highlighted by this kind of move towards the more evident, the more visible? Uh, so the, the first uh, ostensories or um, uh, monstrances uh, 
were were made in, in the Middle Ages. I've, I've basically in the I think it starts in the 13th century. The uh, first recorded Corpus Christi procession actually happened in in Cologne in in, in Germany. And um, but it, originally, it uh, the Blessed Sacrament was carried in in a closed um, uh, sort of pyxis, in a closed receptacle, so it was uh, not seen. But soon after that, towards the end of the 13th century, uh, it was actually carried in uh, the glass case that well then developed into a monstrance. And so we have these later medieval magnificent uh, monstrances, Baroque period. Um, there certainly was a great emphasis at the time at seeing uh, the host. Uh, uh, a, a visual, visual piety, which of course may have had something to do with the fact that um, uh, Catholics in that period received communion very rarely. And uh, so, but there was was a great focus on on, on seeing uh, the host, and that was then adopted in the practice of sort of solemn um, adoration. And but. Um, of course, Christ is present in in the tabernacle, and and as you said, that that makes the key difference: uh, the presence of Christ in the tabernacle or in the uh, in the monstrance or not. And um, the the tabernacles were moved more generally to the main altar of the church in the late medieval Renaissance period, really, also to to encourage adoration because well, Christ is there, and you can actually come to uh, pray in in His presence um, anytime during the day, not just during certain hours of of solemn. Um, adoration. Um, now, if, if there's um, one criticism of the the present revival of, of adoration, I would like to make is that sometimes um, uh, this exposition of, of the sacrament uh, is done in a bit in a fashion that's a bit too casual. Uh, it's done a bit too too quickly. Uh, um, uh, it should be. Uh, accompanied by a certain certain solemnity, by uh, a certain uh, ritual, should be, should be something special because Christ is always present in the tabernacle, and you can always adore Him in His presence in the tabernacle. So you don't always need sort of um, uh, uh, exposition um, uh, straight away if you have the tabernacle, say, um, in a central place in um, in the church. Um, so because uh, well, it's it's the presence of Christ in uh, either. Uh, in well, in the form of Eucharistic uh, reservation um, that has developed historically, that uh, where where the the um, well, the real importance um, is. So may, maybe pursuant to that, a follow up thought about uh, progressive solemnity. Um, so you're going to have certain places in which a parish is able to have. Uh, perpetual or near-perpetual Eucharistic adoration, uh, but you'll, you'll have more places for which that's not the case. Um, and I think that, you know, people might be, you know, obviously uh, animated or encouraged in their Eucharistic devotion by the availability of Eucharistic adoration, but they might think that in the absence thereof, their prayer matters less or their prayer um, signifies less. And I, I guess, yeah, I don't know if you could meditate a bit on... Um, yeah, this notion of progressive solemnity and how there's an ebb and flow to our liturgical lives, because I think sometimes people think, you know, their, their liturgical lives or their paraliturgical lives are only good to the extent that they are optimized or maximized. But then they also realize instinctually that they're not going to go to Mass 17 times a day just because they could. So, yeah, what, what might be um, a, a liturgical principle or liturgical principles that could help us to make sense of our lives and their ebb and flow and their complexity and their differentiation? 
yes, I think that's a, a very good point. Uh, uh, it's, the, it's a tendency of our, of our time. Um, uh, we tend to, to uh, make an event uh, of every, uh, out of everything. We want to make uh, every event uh, uh, very, very special. Uh, and... Um, and then we uh, transfer this this uh, way of thinking also into our our practice of the faith. Um, um, so um, I think the, uh, the the idea of a, a progressive solemnity I think can help here. So so marking certain days, certain times of the year, in which well uh, adoration is actually um, celebrated in a more solemn way, and I think the the best way of doing that is uh, where you can do it uh, the the quarantore the forty hours of adoration, um, which is something that also uh, our own founder Saint um, Philip Neri uh, cherished very much. He didn't introduce it, but he uh, took uh, took on the idea very enthusiastically. So that's what we have to once a year we have these um this very elaborate exposition of the blessed sacrament really to to um, um give a sort of an impetus to to give encouragement of course not just uh, to pray during uh, those uh, three days but uh, to carry that over into the whole year also when it is uh, a, a more modest form of um of adoration even to say the simple a visit to the Blessed Sacrament during the day. You know, you pass the church in the way to you to work. You pop into the church for for a moment and, and say uh, to pray, uh, and then uh, you go on your way again. It used to be the case uh, in many dioceses that um, this uh, forty hours adoration um, was done sort of continually throughout the diocese, sort of from church to church or from ch uh, church to chapel and so on. And uh, that then, so you had the sense that it was sort of perpetual, always uh, continuing in the diocese. I think that's a lovely idea. I haven't seen that anywhere except um, about ten years ago when I visited uh, Peru in the Archdiocese of Lima. That was done, and I found that uh, very wonderful. That is, yeah, um, it's the, the idea that you mentioned, not the idea, the practice that you mentioned of making a visit. Um, it's something that struck me very much in reading a Graham Greene novel. Uh, the end of the affair and uh, the female protagonist, Sarah Miles, is kind of drawn into a church and then finds herself, you know, gravitating it, gravitating to it with greater frequency. And then she finds, you know, whatever's transpiring there, takes hold of her life and changes her life. And um, it's fascinating. Uh, yeah, I mean, some people will observe this kind of evolution where you feel a certain warmth or a certain safety in a church, uh, almost like it's a place where you know, God's present, but he's content to leave you alone for a time. Um, but then once he decides to make his presence more felt or to begin to reorient the inner workings of your life, that you're, you're okay with that because you've had time to thaw out or you've had time to return to your senses. Um, it's, it's, I mean, I suppose there's a kind of fear and trembling with which one approaches these matters uh, trying to give causal descriptions of exactly what it is that's taking place because it's, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to say. It's just that when you draw near, yeah, things in your life change, uh, almost inexplicably, except that you can point to their source. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. If I may just uh, jump in, of course, also you, you, you don't see anything, even when the sacrament is exposed, you know, uh, you don't see the presence, uh, of, 
uh, Christ with uh, with your senses. You can't perceive them. But it's through, well, the eyes of faith. I mean, uh, through that faith, uh, you 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 can have, a, a, well, I suppose a knowledge of, of the present that, that draws you and then really um, can, can touch and transform you. Yeah. Great. Well, um, perhaps that's a, that's a good place uh, at which to conclude. Um, I'm wondering, you know, you've, you've written on this theme in various places. If you could recommend um, things that people might read and profit from or places where they might be able to follow up with your work uh, from, from here on out. Well, it, um, on the question of um, uh, adoration, uh, there are these uh, quite regular um, uh, international conferences, adoratio, um, and they, uh, I think the, the papers in, uh, have been published. So I think that would be a good source to, to, to uh, learn more and also um, enter more into that spirit of adoratio, so, uh, adoration. Um, I really uh, haven't so much um, written about it. In a way, this, this uh, lecture was a good opportunity for me to um, enter into it. There's some some of it is um, in my book, uh, uh, the Roman Mass from Early Christian Origins to Tridentine Reform, which came out uh, last year. So, uh, in in the wider context, really, of the uh, evolution of the right of the Mass, so these aspects um, um, come up uh, in the book, but um, only sort of in, in various places. So. Wonderful. Um, how? Um... I've seen a, a couple of books, you know, from the mid 20th century about the Roman Rite. What would it be? Jungmann? Is that the, the kind of big one? Jungmann would be the big one, yes. And still in many ways, um, um, standard. Um, his knowledge of the sources, his uh, command of, of these sources. But um, I think some of his assumptions need to be questioned, and that's what I try to do in, in my work, so question some of his assumptions, but also integrate some of the more recent research, because it's been well, more than half a century um, uh, since um, Jungmann, the last edition of his great work, so uh, I, thought, I thought it was time for, for a new approach. Wonderful. Yeah, that, no, that's a, and that's a service, too, because various books that one might read on the liturgy they approach it from a certain vantage or they address a certain issue. I'm thinking of like Wellsprings of Worship by Jean Corbon or The Spirit of the Liturgy by both Guardini and then, you know, Ratzinger. Um, but yeah, the the attempt to give something more comprehensive and historical is, is a great service. So thanks. Thanks for writing that. Um, and and thanks for, for this conversation. So uh, for, for making the time and taking the time, I appreciate it. And I'm sure our listeners appreciate it as well. Thank you very much. Then turning to you, the listener, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Off-Campus Conversations. Uh, you can look for the next one in about two weeks, unless it comes out later than or earlier than two weeks from now, then you can look for it then. So uh, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on the Thomistic Institute podcast.